story goes that centuries ago, there was an artist somewhere in Italy, and he wanted to paint a picture of the Madonna and her infant, that is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the child Jesus. And so he looked for a young mother and her infant and found a peasant mom and saw her holding her little baby close to her body and asked, do you mind if I sketch you and then paint you and your child? And she agreed. And so day after day, he would study her features and sketch her picture out and then eventually painted her and the infant and hung it up in a gallery. Many, many years later, he decided to paint another picture. This time, he wanted to do a New Testament kind of portrait that featured Judas. But where to find a model for Judas, someone that might look like Judas looked? He decided the best place to find somebody like that might be in a prison. So he went to the town prison, and he found the inmates that were on death row. And amidst them, he found one in particular who reminded him of what Judas may have been like. A man that looked particularly wicked and evil. A man who seemed harsh in his features, lived a hard life, and had done terrible things in society, terrible enough to deserve the death penalty. He asked the man, can I paint a portrait of you? And the man strangely enough, agreed. And so day after day, the artist went in and he sketched out the man's features. But as he was doing that, something about the man troubled him, something about the face, something about the look. And it wasn't until he was ready to paint the man's portrait that he suddenly realized what was troubling him. The man he was now painting had been the infant he had painted years ago as baby Jesus. Someone has said that there is a Judas in all of us. And I ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a bit of Judas in you? As we begin our new series called Redeem, we're talking about what God has done to bring us back into right relationship with himself. We're looking at the journey of Jesus to the cross, which will culminate on Good Friday, and then we will celebrate the resurrection on Easter weekend. But as we move to the passion of Christ and his suffering, I want to remind you that it's not a story that happened long ago. It's not just about what God has done for the world, for God so loved the world, but it's about you, and it's about me. And each of us needs to put ourselves personally in the story so that we hear what God is saying to us and discovering what God has done for us. He's redeemed us. He's brought us back into the garden, so to speak, and yet the troubling fact is that the Judas in us has a tendency to resist the work of God's grace in us. 
Why is that? And how do we overcome it? To answer the question, take your Bibles and let's go back to the Gospel of Mark where we've been on a journey together. Turn open to Mark chapter 14, would you please? Mark chapter 14. Now Jesus has sent two of his disciples ahead of him to a pre-arranged room where they're going to celebrate the Passover, the commemoration of how God led the people of Israel out of bondage and slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt through his servant Moses. And so the men would have gone ahead and of the many items that they would have had to prepare for the Passover, they would have gotten a lamb and slain it, skinned it, roasted it. And as they ate that meat, it reminded them of that night when they were told, the Israelites were told to slay an animal and put its blood on the doorpost so that when the angel of death would pass by, it would see the blood and it would not cause the death of the firstborn in that home. But every home without the blood on the doorpost would lose their firstborn. And it was a picture, a picture of Jesus who would come as God's lamb and be slain. The Bible says the foundation of the world it was decided that Christ would die for us and his blood was smeared on that cross and God passes over us and condemns his son instead of us. And his son becomes like us and we become like his son, accepted and loved by the grace of God. There, as they were celebrating that, we pick up the picture in verse 17. It says, In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one? He replied, It's one of you, twelve, who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for the man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. He took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. He is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, one of the things we know is that the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that we too, like the Jews commemorated Passover, need to commemorate this, but in light of what it means in Jesus. And that's why once a month at our church, we celebrate Holy Communion. We take the bread to remind ourselves the body of Christ, the cup to remind ourselves the blood of Christ that was shed for us. But there's another reason why God wants us to do this, not just to remember what he's done for us, but there's something else we need to remember as well. And it's found in verse 18, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth. One of you eating with me here will betray me. Now, as God wants us to remember, not just the betrayment of Judas, but he wants us to also be keenly aware that apart from his grace, there's a Judas in all of us that would 
betray God. It's hard to believe, isn't it? That 12 men who were as close to God as you can possibly get, who touched him, who laughed with him, who loved with him, who cried with him, who rejoiced with him, who sang with him, who played, who walked with him, who ran with him, who fished with him, who saw him do all those miracles. It's hard to believe that one of them would betray him, one of them would deny him, and all 12 would defect, walk away from him. It's just hard to, just hard to imagine that. But then maybe it's not. I mean, all of us have known or know of famous Christians. They could be preachers, they could be leaders, they could be artists. Who you've listened to, who you've watched, you've read their books, and you've thought to yourself, now there's an example of a woman of God or a man of God. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. And we admire them, and we say, oh, look how close they are to God. And then one day you get up, and a friend tells you, or you read it on the Internet or in the paper, that so-and-so has fallen from grace. They've made a spiritual train wreck out of their life. And you read that, and you're just dismayed. You think to yourself, how could it be? How could it happen to somebody like that? Never thought it could. Or we've known people in a very personal way. Maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a parent, or it might be a friend that's close to us, and we just thought that everything was good between them and God, and then one day, although it always takes more than one day, but then one day we just realize, oh my goodness, this person has, has walked away from God or has behaved in a way that just betrays the fact they've not been walking with God. And the closer they are to us, the more hurtful that is, isn't it? Because while our faith is to be God and God alone, let's admit it, our faith is often helped by our faith in people that we think model what it means to follow God and, and to walk with God. It, we rarely get to do it, but every once in a while, our whole family gets together, and we love to have meals together as a family. How many of you enjoy doing that with family and friends, having a meal together? It's good, isn't it? It's biblical. Read the Bible. There's a lot of eating in the Old and New Testament. There'll be a lot of eating in heaven someday and, and on the new earth when we're with our Lord. It's a lot to look forward to. I'm sure ice cream will be on the menu. <laughs> and it won't melt. <laughs> we enjoy it. We laugh. We, we celebrate. We reminisce. We tell stories. You know, this meal that's being had here, this meal should be a celebratory time with Jesus and his disciples. I mean, they're celebrating the emancipation of God's people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, the parting of the Red Sea, and all the things that happened. Well, there is sadness here. I mean, there is sadness the fact that the Lamb of God must be slain in order for this to take place. But the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But I think the real sadness at this meal it's the fact that one who Jesus calls his friend, and he does in the book of John, he calls Judas his friend when Judas comes to betray him in the garden. 
The one who's called his friend, who he's been so close to, is going to sell him out. Is going to sell him out. Lord, is it I? <laughs> is it me? Seriously, Lord, is it me? Are you suggesting that I am going to betray you? It says there in the passage that each one of them went one by one down the line saying, me? How about you? Remember, put yourself in the story. How about you? Is it you? I mean, really, seriously, could, are you capable of that? Am I capable of that? I mean, I know I'm bad, but I don't think I'm that bad. I know I'm evil, but I don't think I'm that evil. And to use some bad grammar for just a moment, let me take a survey. How many of you know somebody badder than you? <laughs> and I don't mean badder in the cool way. I mean, like, bad in an evil way. We all do. We all do. We do it all the time. We are always in the back of our mind. The little voice is going, I'm not that bad. Oh, man, that's bad. I'm not that, I'm not that evil. I'm not that awful. That <laughs> always is kind of going through our minds. And by the way, have you ever wondered in this story, why is it that Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me? There's only 12 men in the room, why not just say, you, Judas, you are the one that's going to betray me. Why not just point him out? Why does he say, and one of you twice, and one of you? I mean, is Jesus trying to get them to look inside themselves? Does he want them to examine themselves? Does he want them to come to terms with themselves? Is Jesus really suggesting that one of you could do that it's just hard to think that we could be that wicked we could be that evil I came across a blog the other day I'm not recommending this person's blog just happened to come across it in my research but uh, she calls herself Miss Cranky Pants <clears throat> and um, I read her blog and one of the one of the writings she did and here's what she said she said I love to hear amazing grace the tune and a testimonial for transformative change, something a former therapist like me is on board with. I like grace as a concept and appreciate the long view imagining that 10,000 years hence, the concept would still be powerful. How many of you like that song, Amazing Grace? It's beautiful, just like the hymn they sang up here right before the message was just beautiful. She uh, then writes and says, I'm good with the song right up until the line about a wretch like me. She continues, a writing teacher would say it pulls me out of the story. People like me who don't self-identify as wretches has suggested alternate lyrics like saved and set free or saved a soul like me or saved and strengthened me. They solve the wretch problem. Ah, the wretch problem. The wretch problem. I didn't come to church this weekend to be told I'm a wretch. I hope you're not going there. Well, I am. <laughs> they had a problem with the wretch problem, these disciples. 
These guys who have been hanging out with Jesus for three years, they don't see themselves as wretches. Well, let me prove it to you. In Luke's account of what's happening here in Mark, he gives us a little bit more detail. He says in Luke chapter 22, verse 23, the disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. Is it I? Is it me? I mean, seriously, you think it's me? And then just like that, boom, just like that, verse 24, he says, then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. People who are arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them are not worried about whether they're wretches or not. They're thinking about how good they are, how great they are. Not their wretches. Not their wickedness. We all do that. It's called pride. We're all affected with pride. We talked about this several series ago. We talked about the human issue of the ego. Remember, we said it's like a balloon. I had a balloon up here, remember? And we had ego written on it. We said we're always trying to build up our ego. And how do we do that? We build it up by by trying to please people who will tell us good things about ourselves to make us feel good about ourselves. But have you ever noticed that you can have 100 people tell you how wonderful you are? It only takes one person to pop the balloon with that needle. One criticism, one reminder of your failures or how you don't measure up. We are desperately always trying to inflate ourselves and feel good about ourselves. And yet God says, the honest truth is, no matter how good you try to feel about yourself, the bottom line is, you're a wretch. Where does that come from? Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17, verse 9, he puts it this way. He says, the human heart is the most, (laughs) do you read that? Is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? God does. God does. And listen carefully. There's actually something healthy about knowing how bad my heart is. I mean, physically speaking, think about your physical heart for a moment. If your heart has disease, don't you want to know it? So you can go get surgery and get fixed, get healed? If your spiritual heart has a disease, don't you want to know it? So you know where to go to get it fixed, to to get it healed? Alexander Solzhenitsyn made a a comment. I want to share what he said to you. It's very simple, actually. He wrote, the line dividing good from evil goes down the center of every human heart. The line dividing good and evil goes down the center of every human heart. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 7 cried out in his own testimony. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. That's why Isaiah in chapter 6 says, woe is me. I'm a man undone. He's wicked. You know, I have a wicked, I have wicked voice. I have, I have wicked language. Came to grips with their wretchedness, their sinfulness, which drove them, compelled them to God. Why? Why do we struggle so much to own our wretchedness, especially in our culture these days? Where where we want to talk about how good we are and how we're getting better, we don't want to talk a lot about how how bad we are outside of God's grace. We certainly don't want to go to church and hear about how bad we are, but I'm here to tell you it's a good thing to know how bad you are. It's a good thing to know how bad you are. But why is it? Why is it we don't like owning our wretchedness? It's because, I already mentioned, because of our pride, because we are always comparing ourselves to others. 
everybody here, nobody's exempt. Everybody in this room and everybody watching me online, every last one of you, we spend our days consciously and subconsciously comparing ourselves to others to feel what? Better about ourselves. Better about ourselves. And it always feels better when you see somebody who's worse than you. If your parents, doesn't it feel better when you see somebody else's kids misbehaving worse than your kids? Huh? Don't you feel a little bit better about yourself when you see, oh, I know my kid can be tough, but wow, I'm glad I don't have that kid. Well, you don't. Other people do. You know what I'm talking about, right? We do that all the time. It's, it's actually very unhealthy because it gives us a superficial kind of view of ourselves. It's not even true. It's not even true. I like the, the story of David, though it's tragic in many ways. You know, David is called a man after God's own heart. Isn't that amazing? A man after God's own heart. But we know David's story. We know that David committed adultery, got the woman pregnant, had her husband murdered, and tried to cover it up. Given the right opportunity, the right circumstances, we are capable of such wickedness because we are so wretched. G.K. Chesterton, a Catholic man living in England with strong beliefs, a philosopher, an author, a writer, Stuff's not easy to read, by the way. One day, the London Times contacted him and a whole bunch of other essayists and writers and said, we want you to answer a question. We'll publish your answer. And the question is this. What's wrong with the world? I've shared this with you before, but you probably forgot. What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton sent in his essay right away, except it was a really short essay. They opened it up in the London Times. The question is, what's wrong with the world? And his answer was, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> I'm here to let you know, maybe this will make you feel better today. You are not what's wrong with the world. This, you are not what's wrong with the world. The Democrats are not what's wrong with the world. The Republicans are not what's wrong with the world. The Independents are not what's wrong with the world. This administration is not what's wrong with the world. Or the last administration, the future administration, it's not some regime. It's not people's sexual identity. None of that is what's wrong with the world. Do you know what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? I am wrong with the world. I, Dale Hummel, I'm what's wrong with the world. Oh. There's something healthy about being able to say that, actually. Can you say that? Can you say that you are what's wrong with the world? I almost want to give you the exercise to do right now, but I don't, want, I don't want you to lie to each other if you don't feel that way. But I am what's wrong with the world. You see, if I don't come to grips, if I don't come to grips with my sinfulness, if I don't come to grips with my wretchedness, you know what I'm always going to have a hard time doing? Think about this. I'm always going to have a hard time forgiving. As long as you think you're better than somebody else, it will be almost impossible for you to forgive others. Oh, you might forgive certain petty things, but the bigger the sins are, the harder it will be for you to forgive. Because you see yourself as better than someone else. But if I understand that I am wretched, that I am what's wrong with the world, well, it certainly helps me forgive because if not for the grace of God, there go I, I can be far more 
forgiving. What's another reason? What's, what, what else is there to why we have such a hard time owning our wretchedness? It's this propensity in us to look down at others. It's all part of the ego. In this case, it's not comparison. In this case, it's just, it's just looking at people or groups of people and looking down on them. It's what's at the root of racism and bigotry and all kinds of issues in every culture all around the world. And all of us, all of us suffer it and all of us are guilty of it. We all have a tendency to look down on other people for all kinds of bizarre, strange reasons. Why is that? Because we won't own our wretchedness. If we all owned our wretchedness, there'd be far less of what we experience in our culture these days. I'm not better than anybody else. Nobody else is better than me. I'm just a sinner. That's one of the things I like about AA. You know, if you go to an AA meeting and they all just kind of admit they're drunks. And when one of them gets out of line and starts to excuse his or her problem with drunkenness, the rest kind of gang up and say, oh, sit down and be quiet, you're just a drunk. It'd just be nice if we could all have a 12-step wretched meeting, wouldn't it? Hi, I'm Dale and I'm wretched. Some of you are like, eh. <laughs> or some of you are like, yeah, you are, but I'm not. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be freeing? Think about it for a minute. Wouldn't that be freeing if we just all walk in every day and just own that? Yep, I am wretched. But for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. And that leads us to kind of a, the big idea of what I'm trying to say, if you want to jot it down. And that is until I recognize what a wretch I am, I won't come to accept the grace of that God offers to me. And what is grace? Grace is God looking at us and saying, you're in a wretched situation, you can't help yourself, but I love you so much, I'm going to enter the dirt, I'm going to get down on your level, and I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to become you so you can become me. I'll take your wretchedness to myself, and I'm going to pour my grace over you. I'm going to lift you up as unworthy and make you worthy. I'm going to lift you up as a wretch and make you a wonder before all of heaven. That's what grace is. I'd rather live by grace than live the other way, wouldn't you? That's what grace is. That's why we sing that song, Amazing Grace, that saved, uh, you know, and it is true these days. People want, some people don't even want to say the word wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good guy like me. We struggle with that, though. I mean, we kind of think that a little bit in the back of our mind. But it's so healing to just accept this is my broken life and God loves me anyway and I don't have to run around trying to impress God, compare myself to others. I'm just loved by God. Man, it changes our life. I want to give you a picture as we close of a person who's experienced grace compared to the Judas who hasn't. In John chapter 12, we have another dinner party. I told you they like to eat in the Bible. And it's almost noon, and I promise not to keep you here past 2 o'clock. Just kidding. <laughs> I know you're hungry. Uh, 
But the Christian restaurant, Chick-fil-A, is not open on Sundays. Anyway, John chapter 12. <laughs> if you, you're like, what? See, you need to be here every weekend, because if you were, you would remember I talked about something about that a while back. Anyway, that gave you time to go to John 12, right? That was one of my moments. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. So six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. At dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served with Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume. It's like her life savings, made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet. So she's down on her knees, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Oh, there he is. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. Since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, here's the strange thing. There's really no difference between Judas and Mary. They're both wretches. But there's a huge difference between Judas and Mary because Mary understands grace. She's a gospel person, Timothy Keller says. She's encountered the, the gospel of grace. Judas has not encountered the gospel of grace. As close as he is to God, he will not accept God's grace. I look at their lives and I see such a difference between them. I look at Mary's life and I jotted this down for myself. She gives more than she receives. You notice that? I'm sorry, let me rephrase it again. She gives because she receives. She gives because she receives. Do you notice that? She gives like the most expensive thing that she has in her life. She pours it out on his feet. She washes his feet with her hair. Why? Because she's received so much from him. The greatest thing she's received so far is in John chapter 11, her brother back from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Do you know that God has raised you from the dead? Spiritually speaking, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but Christ went to the cross and died so that you are born again. And someday you're going to receive a brand new body to boot. Won't that be awesome? Look what he's done for you. You can't ever outgive God. And so she's there pouring out her ointment, pouring out her love and her worship, this beautiful scene, because she's so overwhelmed by all that she's received from God. I look at Judas's life, and Judas, Judas never gives. He never gives. He only takes, literally, he only takes. That's the difference between somebody who's encountered grace and somebody who hasn't. Somebody who's encountered grace, just they just want to give everything to God, their love, their life, their passion, their worship, because they realize he's given so much to them. I look at Mary's life, and I realize here's a woman that knows how unworthy she is. I see her down on, her, on the floor washing his feet with her hair as such a symbol of humility, as such a picture of unworthiness. She knows how undeserving she is of his love and his grace and his power. I look at Judas and there's no sense that he's aware of his unworthiness. Judas thinks he's worth everything. He uses Jesus till he can't use him anymore and then he betrays him. And as much as I want to go shame on you, what a wicked bad person, I think about how often I've attempted to use Jesus too. 
When I try to get him to answer a prayer, that will benefit me, that will help me, that will make life easier for me, make life better for me. And sometimes he doesn't answer that prayer and it takes me off. How about you? Or I'm alone today. Doesn't God sometimes, don't you feel disappointed by God? And in those moments we feel disappointed by God, what's our tendency? Our tendency is to defect, right? is to move away from God because God's not working for us the way we thought he should work for us. And why is it I would ever think that God should do something for me? Pride. Because I think I'm worth it. And I'm not. I'm a wretch. Saved by his grace. How about you? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, in your word, you tell us about another woman who came in. She was a known sinner, and and she also fell at your feet and washed your feet with her hair and her tears. You tell us, Lord, that a different kind of Judas, a man named Simon, was angered by that, that you would allow such a sinful person to do that. Lord, you told him, one who is forgiven much loves much. And that's our condition today, oh God. We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven so much. You have forgiven our wretchedness with your grace. Oh God, how we thank you. And our saying thank you is not enough. We owe our lives to you, Lord. You've been so good to us. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. There are some of you here today, and I'm, I'm convinced... I didn't need to tell you that you are a wretch. You know you're a wretch, and you, you're wondering, does God care about me? Does God love me? I feel and know my wretchedness. I just, I feel like there's no hope for me. I'm here to tell you there is so much hope for you. The well of grace is so deep, it doesn't end. And whatever it is in your life, God forgives, God heals, God cleanses. Let him pick you up. Let him have your life today. And if you're ready and you're at that place, I want to encourage you to, to let us know. We'd like to respond to you. There's a really simple way you can do that. You can just text the name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, to this number you can see on the screen. You want to look up. It's 952-234-6300. If you text the name Jesus in, we'll get right back to you and help you get going on your journey of living in and enjoying and, and bathing in his grace. There may be some of us here today who've moved away from God's grace. What I mean by that is we've moved into pride. You say, well, how do I know if that's me? It's simple. Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others? Pride's gotten in there. Do you find yourself looking down on others? Do you, do you look at certain people for whatever reason and, and somehow think you're better than them? You've moved into pride. Having a hard time forgiving others, you've moved into pride. And what you need to do is you need to get before the cross, before Easter, you need to bow at the cross and own your own wretchedness, your own brokenness, and come back to where you first began. Lord, speak to our hearts. Speak deeply to our hearts in these days. Bring us back, oh God. Bring us back to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and sing.
sing this with your grace. For your grace, so free, washes over me. You have made me new, now life begins with you. It's your endless love, it's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made for the place. Go in the freedom that God has won for you. God's grace be with you. You're dismissed.